Nice buns, soft, fluffy, and ultra low net carbs. Discover Hero Bread, the delicious ultra low net carb bread with incredible taste and texture. Hero Bread has zero grams of sugar and is under 100 calories per serving. Plus, high in fiber with 5 to 10 grams of protein per serving. Order from Hero.co now and get 10% off your first purchase with promo code AH10. That's 10% off with code AH10. H-E-R-O C-O. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. with Wings Productions presents a Skylark special episode. I'm your host, Melissa Oliveri. As you may know, in January we will begin reading Skydive, the third and final book in the Skylark trilogy. With the end of the Skylark books in mind, I've started writing a brand new book, which will likely also turn into a series called The Tales of Lydia Roy. The first book is called Now You See Me, and today we'll be reading the first four chapters. I hope you enjoy this new story with new characters, new scenery, and new adventures. If you enjoy this episode and want to read more, I'm releasing chapters as I write them exclusively on Patreon, where you can join for as little as $1 per month, $12 for an entire year of unlimited access to all my content music, writing, and early access to podcast episodes. It's a great value, and it helps support my work. Now, back to our new friend Lydia. Here's a synopsis to give you an idea of where things are headed. Lydia Roy is neurodivergent, a musician, and a happenstance clairvoyant. After years of trying to earn a living in music, her big break comes from the unlikeliest of places— when a friend interviews her for his indie magazine and asks about how seeing ghosts has inspired her songwriting. Somehow, the article ends up in front of an overseas producer, and Lydia is hired to star as the resident psychic alongside two Scots doing a travelogue-style television show about Scotland's history. Of course, all is not coming up roses. In fact, Things are coming up thistles. First, her co-star Hamish is displeased that the production company has hired someone who isn't Scottish. And her other co-star, Mac, is charming if you like the brooding, secretive type. Then she has a series of strange encounters with a dark-haired man who insists he knows her, 
despite Lydia never having set foot in Scotland previously. Of course, when dealing with ghosts, there are bound to be risks, and sometimes even consequences. Follow Lydia as she navigates her new surroundings and the people in them, both living and dead. Okay, it's time to settle in, grab a blanket and a warm drink, and let's dive into the world of Lydia Roy. Chapter 1. Anywhere But Here It's a gimmick! The bald, bearded man's face is getting redder with every word, a stark contrast to the bright white of his t-shirt. She's not even an actress. She's not even Scottish, he exclaims, throwing his hands up in exasperation. She will appeal to American audiences, and we need the ratings. The producer's voice takes on an edge as his patience begins to wane. He sits rigidly behind his immense desk. His pristine wool suit is beige as his personality. The producer's tiny eyes filter through thick, round glasses that only serve to magnify his pasty complexion. This office could do with some windows. "'What does Mac have to say about this?' pursues the bald man, his head dangerously teetering on fuchsia as he paces back and forth between the piles of file folders and magazines on the floor. "'I sit in my chair.' my stomach churning at the awkward feeling of being talked about as if I'm not there. I've been in this situation countless times before, typically at school meetings with my grandparents. Academically, she's brilliant, but socially, she appears to be struggling. I let go of those memories with a shudder and gently pinch the bridge of my nose with my fingers, as if to stave off a non-existent migraine. My gaze has been bouncing between the two men as though I'm watching a tennis match. The room smells vaguely of old shoes and the whirring of the fan in the corner is grating on my nerves. I need a break. How in the world did I get here? I know exactly how I got here. I did a friend a favor and got a little too honest during an interview for his magazine. Some producers got wind of it, my agent set up a meeting, I braved the first airplane ride of my adult life. And now I sit with my eyes squeezed shut, silently wishing to be transported anywhere but this small, stuffy office filled with ugly filing cabinets and ridiculously oversized antique furniture. As the bickering quiets down, I look to the wood grain and bronze nameplate on the desk, my eyes traveling over the engraved letters that spell out Ernest Mapplethorpe, Executive Producer. Hamish resumes Mr. Mapplethorpe. He takes a moment to regain his composure, then continues in a conciliatory tone. Let's just get through the pilot and go from there. I'll talk to Mac, okay, he offers. He places his pallid hands on the desk mat in front of him. A low grunt emanates from Hamish's throat as he gives a gruff, conceding nod. Splendid, exclaims Mr. Mapplethorpe. Ms. Roy, thank you for your time. We'll be in touch with the schedule and locations in the next week or so. I trust your accommodations are satisfactory? Mr. Mapplethorpe's tight English accent is such a contrast to Hamish's thick Scottish one, I can't help but let a smile tease the corner of my mouth. Please, call me Lydia. 
And yes, everything is splendid, I reply, winking at Hamish, who quickly turns away. Whether out of annoyance or to hide a smile he doesn't want me to see, I'm not sure. But I'm determined to get him to at the very least tolerate me. It's taken me a long time to figure out the best way to handle social situations. But after many years of, I came, I saw, I made it awkward, I've learned that being clever and witty is generally a good place to start. Excellent. I look forward to working with both of you. Mr. Mapplethorpe ends the meeting with a clap of his hands and walks around his desk to herd Hamish and I out the office door. It's not personal, lass, begins Hamish as we walk side by side. His tone is much softer and the color in his face appears to be returning to normal, but it's hard to tell in the dimly lit hallway. It's just that this project is near and dear to me and to Mac. We're wanting to bring Scottish culture to the world. And you feel like I'm distracting from that. I understand. I stop to face him, hoping to convey my sincerity. Here's how I see it. I can bring Scottish history to life in a way no one else can. I pause to let him assimilate what I'm saying. In a moment, he's going to be blown away. I relish the anticipation, the excitement building in the pit of my stomach. I can describe in great detail people who existed and events that happened decades, even centuries ago, with stunning accuracy, as if watching the scene play out on film. Hamish stares at me for a moment, his narrowed eyes the color of an impending storm, and I wonder if I've succeeded in piquing his curiosity. Finally, he asks the very question I was hoping for. How? I match his unwavering gaze, a smile stretching across my face. Because I can see their ghosts. Chapter 2. I Know You Elevators are terribly awkward. Standing among strangers in an enclosed space with music that's too quiet to discourage conversation and too loud to be ignored. When I was young, my dad took me to a playdate at a friend's apartment building. We got in the elevator and partway up it stopped. The doors opened and we were faced with a solid concrete wall. The elevator had stopped between floors. It was one of the most terrifying experiences of my life. I don't remember what happened after that, but obviously we got out. I'm very much looking forward to getting out of this elevator. It's incredibly creaky and the people next to me smell like chlorine. They must be returning from the hotel swimming pool. The elevator dings and after two or three stomach-churning seconds, the door opens. It takes all the self-control I can muster to not push the smelly chlorine kids out of my way and bust out of there. I remind myself that I need to live up to the polite Canadian trope. Finally, I reach my room, let myself in, slide the chain on the lock, and flop onto the bed. I let my mind go blank as my eyes trace the swirling pattern of the stucco on the ceiling. Finally, I muster up the energy to dig my phone out of my pocket and dial Magalie's number. Magalie was the first friend I made when I moved to Montreal. She worked in the cafe on the ground floor of my apartment building, which thankfully did not have an elevator. 
She helped me get my first gigs when I started writing songs, and connected me with Philippe, who interviewed me for his magazine, which is how I got here. Oui, allô? Magalie's voice sounds so close, and I suddenly feel so far away. Bonjour, Magalie. It's Lydia. Lydia, how is Scotland? How did the meeting go? Did you eat the fried Mars bar already? I laugh at her enthusiasm, which is only elevated by her delightful Haitian French accent. I fill her in on the contentious meeting with Hamish and Mr. Mapplethorpe, and tell her about the adorable tea house across the street from the hotel, and no, I haven't yet had a deep fried Mars bar, but it's on my agenda for tomorrow. We chat for a few more minutes before I reluctantly tell her I have to go or the phone bill will force me to file for bankruptcy. I stand up and stretch, then haul my suitcase onto the bed. I might as well settle in. Mr. Mapplethorpe said I'd be staying here in Edinburgh for at least a week. I unzip my suitcase and am greeted by the issue of The Paranormal Times that sparked this adventure. Little did I know then that my conversation with Philippe about how my psychic visions inspire my songwriting would lead to me being offered a part on a television show overseas. I've been working on forging a path in the music business for years, and somehow, it's my clairvoyant abilities that are putting me on TV. Go figure. A loud stomach growl echoes in my tiny room. Okay, okay, I get it. You're feeling neglected. I laugh out loud, placing a hand on my abdomen. I check my watch, 10 p.m. Hopefully the hotel restaurant is still open. I slip the key card and my wallet into my pocket and head out the door, this time taking the stairs rather than the elevator. I get to the lobby and make a beeline for the restaurant, my hunger going from small pang to ravenous in the few minutes it has taken me to get downstairs. Unfortunately, the dining tables are all bare and most of the lights have already been turned off. Shoot, now I have to improvise, which is not my forte. I turn toward the front desk. How may I help you, says the young man behind the desk, looking up from his computer screen. I glance at his name tag. Hello, Martin. I'm afraid I'm late for dinner. Do you have suggestions for places nearby that are still open, I ask him. Martin looks up toward the ceiling. I follow his gaze, wondering what he's looking at. Then blush when I realize he's simply staring into oblivion to have a think. There is a late-night diner a few blocks away, but if you prefer not to venture out, we are still serving appetizers and desserts at the bar, he says, extending his arm toward a glass doorway through which I can see a low-lit room full of people. Wonderful, thank you, I say, forcing a smile. Low-lit rooms full of people are not my forte either, but desperate times, as they say. I tug the heavy door open and am greeted by a blast of hot air, loud music, and buzzing chatter. Taking a deep breath, I wind my way through the crowd and find a seat at the end of the bar. The bartender comes over a few minutes later. What can I get you, she shouts, leaning as far over the counter as she can. I'll take whatever meatless appetizers you have and a chocolate dessert if you have one. To go, please, I shout back, hoping the noise of the crowd doesn't distort my message. 
Shall I charge that to your room? She asks. I nod and hand her my key card. She swipes the card, then enters my order into her computer before handing it back to me. Ten minutes later, I'm walking out of the noisy, crowded, insufferable room with sweat on my brow and a bag full of food. I know you. The man's voice comes from behind me, and I turn, unsure of who he's speaking to. My eyes scan the lobby. Other than Martin at the front desk and a stray bellhop, there's no one else around. Are you speaking to me? I ask, turning to face the man and noting he looks somewhat disheveled and out of place. The man nods, an incredulous look on his face. His wild black curly hair sways back and forth on his head. Something about him is unnerving and my instincts tell me I should be going. I'm afraid you've mistaken me for someone else. I'm not from around here, I say, trying to sound strong and confident but unable to hide the shakiness in my voice. I promptly turn and head toward the elevator, not wanting to be alone in the stairwell if he follows me. No, wait, he shouts, his words echoing across the lobby. I heave a sigh of relief as a couple comes through the front door and joins me just as the elevator doors open to let us in. Thankfully, the strange man doesn't follow. I practically jog back to my room, lock the deadbolt behind me, turn the TV onto a rerun episode of Broadchurch, then sit cross-legged on top of the bedspread. I open the bag and spread my feast out in front of me. Steamed dumplings, presumably vegetable, french fries, crustless cucumber sandwiches, and a double chocolate brownie. Not a bad haul for a late night snack. I devour my food with abandon, then collect the empty boxes back into the bag, tie a knot in the top and toss it under the nightstand. I'll deal with that tomorrow. Now it's time for bed. I fluff the pillows, then throw my pants, socks, and cardigan on the floor next to the bed before sliding under the comforter. The sheets feel smooth as I run my feet up and down a few times to warm up the foot of the bed. I curl up on my left side with a relieved, sleepy smile on my face. The relief and the smile are short-lived. I open my eyes to look at the velvet chaise in the corner of the room. There's a woman stretched out on it, her pink satin evening gown trailing on the floor. Her arm is draped over the back of the chair and her face is pressed into it. She is weeping loudly, her shoulders shaking with every sob. Oh, for Pete's sake, I mutter under my breath. I roll my eyes and flip over to grab the TV remote off the nightstand, then turn the TV volume up a few notches to drown out her moaning. There, I add, before I turn off the lights and let myself drift off to sleep. Chapter 3. The Mad Hatter She's all yours! My fixation on the man's bright orange facial hair creates an awkward lag in the conversation. Finally, I come to, blinking. Zoning out. That's what my ex-boyfriend Francois used to call it. You are doing the zoning out again, he would say in broken English. Thank you so much. I finally replied to the man with the orange beard clearing my throat in embarrassment as I grab the car key from his outstretched hand. I've given myself a couple of days to get acclimated to my new surroundings. 
Now it's time to set off on a little adventure. May I ask where you're headed? Again, the bouncing orange beard. I can't get enough. The placket on the car rental office's service desk says his name is Aiden. I'm going to check out a top-secret filming location for a TV show. I notice Aiden's eyebrows, the same shade of orange as his beard, rise with interest. All I can say is that it's in a town called Castle Douglas, I offer, priding myself in the air of mystery I've conjured up. Well, I wish you safe travels, he replies. I keep myself in check with the orange beard this time and quickly slip out the door. It's a two-hour drive from Edinburgh to Castle Douglas. The locals think I'm crazy driving this far for a day trip, but having spent my life driving between cities in Canada and the U.S., the distance feels quite manageable. I've already picked out a restaurant for lunch. Then I'll visit the castle ruins where we'll be filming. This is going to be an amazing day. I roll the windows down as I reach the outskirts of the city and let the wind blow my hair into tangles. My hand reaches for the volume knob on the car radio as I carefully navigate the winding two-lane road. I crank the knob about halfway and grin as the music comes on. When I wake up, well, I know I'm going to be, oh, perfect! I sing along to the proclaimers at the top of my lungs, cranking the volume higher with each chorus as the rolling fields become a green blur outside the car windows. About an hour and a half into my drive, just past a quaint little town called Amosfield, I encounter something that causes me to pull the car onto the gravel shoulder, kicking a cloud of dust up into the air. I let out a squeal. This is a dream come true. I run down the roadside ditch and up again until I come to the fence. Hello, big friend, I say to the massive shaggy highland cow on the other side. The cow looks at me from under its fabulous bangs and continues to chew on its mouthful of grass, dramatically unimpressed. You are amazing, I gush, stretching my hand out to run my fingers through its hair. The cow seems as disinterested as I am enthralled. Everything all right down there? A voice echoes from the road behind me. I turn and see a tall, broad-shouldered, quintessentially Scottish man sitting on a motorcycle. He's holding his helmet under his arm and has one leg stretched out for balance. My heart skips a beat. You just know I'm going to make it weird. Oh yes, more than all right, I say to him my voice sounding like that of a ten-year-old who just caught a prize frog. I walk back down and up the ditch, wiping my hands on my jeans until I come to the gravel by the roadside. You didn't sound like you're from here, he says. What gave that away, my accent or the fact that I can hardly contain myself at the sight of a highland cow, I quip. The man blinks, unsure of what to make of me, then smiles broadly. Indeed, they're bonny beasts, he replies kindly. Well, I best be on my way then, if you don't require any assistance. My parents are waiting on me for supper and I shouldn't keep ma waiting, he says, lifting his helmet back onto his head. Thanks for checking on me, I shout over the roaring engine of his motorcycle starting up. He gives me a nod and goes zipping down the road. In the dust behind him, I see the shape of a small girl with long brown hair 
her bangs pinned back with a white bow. She disintegrates as the dust settles. I glance along the roadside for signs of a marker or memorial that might explain the vision, but see nothing among the green of the weeds and grass. I shrug it off and hop back into the car. Hashtag clairvoyant life. I arrive in Castle Douglas around 1 p.m. and make my way to the Mad Hatter Tea Room. I chose it for the name alone. Alice in Wonderland is my favorite book. I order a selection of tea sandwiches, a scone, some tea, and, at last, a deep-fried Mars bar. While waiting on my order, I take some time to drink in the art on the walls. Reproductions of John Tenniel's original illustrations of Alice, the Cheshire Cat, the Dodo, the Caterpillar, and, of course, the Mad Hatter himself with his table full of guests, in the form of a mural on the back wall of the restaurant. Quite something, ain't it? comments the waitress as she places a series of rose-trimmed porcelain plates in front of me. I'll be right back with your tea, she adds. I am charmed by the assortment of little sandwiches and the rituals surrounding the tea. There's satisfaction to pouring a cup knowing there will be another, and perhaps another still, waiting for me in the teapot should I decide I want more. The scone is a currant-filled delight served with clotted cream, and the Mars bar is everything I ever dreamed of. I can't wait to tell Magali all about it when I get back to the hotel tonight. Finally, I continue my journey toward Threve Castle. The castle is in ruins, so there won't be any filming inside the structure. It sits on an island in the middle of a river. Mr. Mapplethorpe has organized a ferry to bring a small crew across on the day of filming. I'm not sure what they expect me to do exactly, but I'll cross that bridge later. Threve Gardens is also on the schedule, and I'm most excited about that. The large red brick manors surrounded by over 60 acres of gardens. Perhaps I can make the detour to see it before heading back to Edinburgh. Someone's calling, answer the phone. Imogen Heap's hypnotizing voice bursts out of my cell phone. I sing along to the ringtone for a moment. Don't keep them waiting any longer. Buoyed by the joy of taking a road trip in a foreign land on an unusually sunny Scottish day. I glance down at the screen to see the number. Unknown. I decide to answer anyway in case it's Mr. Mapplethorpe or someone from the crew. Hello? I hear loud static on the other end of the line, but I can make out a faint voice coming through in spurts. Hello, I'm having a hard time hearing you, I say, knitting my brow as I focus on trying to decipher the sounds coming through. Mama? The word comes out loud and clear, causing me to tear the phone away from my ear. Something about the mournful cry breaks my heart. I pull the phone back to my ear. Hello, do you need help? I'm Lydia, what's your name? I ask. My heart is suddenly beating twice as fast as it was a moment ago. Mama, the water's so cold. The voice is distant again, and the cadence disjointed. A strange sensation starts mounting in my stomach. Something is off. I lost my shoe. I'm sorry, Mama. I lost my shoe. The call cuts off abruptly. Hello? Hello? 
I look at my screen and see the call has been disconnected. I slip my phone back into the back pocket of my jeans and rub my hands over my arms to tame the goosebumps that have risen. There was something not of this world about the voice on the other end of the line. A thick cloud covers the sun, turning my surroundings dull gray and moody. I look around and realize how desolate the area is. There's not a soul around. Shuddering, I head back to the car. It's already a challenge to drive on the opposite side of the road that I'm used to. I prefer not to do it in the dark or in the rain. I roll the windows up, crank the music, and turn back toward Edinburgh, leaving the ruins of Threve Castle and the somber atmosphere behind me. Chapter 4 Grass Market Square It's been a couple of days since my day trip to Castle Douglas. Yesterday I took a guided tour of Edinburgh Castle. The tourists just lapped it up. I was distracted by all the ghosts our tour guide wasn't talking about. Like Helen the maid who died in childbirth in the back hallway behind the kitchen. And Georgie, the cook's son, who collected a litter of kittens from the back garden and brought them into the dining hall. Exasperated, I wandered from the group and ended up in a back office where a man sternly informed me the area was off-limits to guests. Relieved, I let him escort me off the property. Today I've been haphazardly wandering the streets, admiring the gothic architecture of the city. Tonight is the production dinner, a meet-and-greet of sorts, before we start filming tomorrow. I'm not a big fan of dinner parties. I never know what to say or how to act. Typically, if I'm at a house party... I just find the family pet and make fast friends, then we hang out in the corner until the chaos of the gathering is over. I doubt there will be any family pets at the restaurant we're meeting at. A place called the Prestwick doesn't sound like a place one would find a domestic animal, no matter how impeccable the pedigree. Something up ahead catches my eye. A small crowd has gathered in the square at the end of the street. I check my map. Grass Market Square. I hear the sound of piano music wafting through the air and feel my feet make their way toward it all on their own. I stand at the back of the crowd, eyes closed, listening to the unique string of notes floating around me. The sounds bend and sway in a spattering of blues with flashes of deep orange. I wonder if anyone else in the crowd sees what I see when I listen to music. The last note fades away and the crowd disperses among clumsy claps and random chatter. I open my eyes just as the man at the piano turns around. I let out a gasp, and the man's eyes grow wide. Before I can turn and run, he holds his hands up in a gesture of peace, his long white fingers stretched out against the graying sky behind him. Please, don't go. My name is Ross, Ross Lennox. I'm so sorry if I frightened you the other night. My approach was admittedly clumsy, he begins. Ross Lennox. I've never heard that name before. I watch as the man from the hotel lobby, the one with the thick mop of curly black hair who insisted he knew me, rises from the piano bench and takes a tentative step toward me. I don't know how to explain this without seeming... 
Here he hesitates. He stops mid-step to gauge my reaction. You said you knew me, I tell him, cautiously opening the door to a conversation. Yes, that's what I said. What I meant was, I've seen you before. His tone is clumsy. His words stumble out awkwardly. I'm afraid you're mistaken, Mr... My voice trails off as I try to remember his name. Lennox, he prompts. Yes, Lennox. I've never been to Edinburgh before, and you don't look familiar to me at all. I try to sound more confident than I'm feeling. You're absolutely right. We've never met, he continues. Well, perhaps you've seen one of my music videos online, or some of my social media posts or something. I'm now mildly curious about where this is going. At this, Ross Lennox smiles, and everything shifts. Suddenly, he's not frightening anymore. I notice a softness to his eyes, and an awkwardness to his stance that is quite endearing. No, nothing like that. I've... Ugh. He sighs in resignation, as if giving up all hope of seeming sound of mind. I've seen you in my dreams. Well, not really dreams, more like visions, he says, looking sheepishly at the ground like he's expecting me to simply bolt and never look back. I shift on my feet, uncomfortable. How am I supposed to respond to this? From anyone else, I would think it's a cheesy pickup line but I'm not getting that vibe from Ross. What kinds of visions? What do you mean? I ask him. Ross looks up at me, a look of relief on his face, with a tinge of disbelief that I'm still standing there willing to talk to him. It's hard to explain. Here, sit with me, he says, sinking back onto the piano bench and patting the spot next to him. I hesitate for a moment and look around to make sure there are still people in the square. I notice a few people milling about and decide to give Ross the benefit of the doubt. I gently sit on the very edge of the bench, leaving as much space as possible between us. Ross holds his mildly trembling hands over the keys and begins to play a melody. I start to shake. This is impossible. About four bars in, I bolt from the bench, causing him to stop playing and leaving a string of notes hanging in the air. H how How are you playing that? I stammer, shoving my hands in my pockets to contain their trembling. I saw you, heard you, in a vision, he replies. His face looks completely serious, not a hint of a joke, not a hint of crazy. I swallow, hard. The piece of music he just played still hangs in the air. A piece of music that I had been composing just before I left for Edinburgh. A piece of music I hadn't even started to record yet. A piece of music that exists only in my head and in the stale air of my Montreal apartment. A piece of music no one but me has ever heard, not even Magali. It had come to me two nights before my flight and I quickly etched it out on my keyboard, making notes in the notebook currently locked in the safe in my hotel room. There is no earthly way this man has ever heard this piece of music. I've only ever heard the first part, he says tentatively. The vision faded before I could hear the rest, 
It has haunted me ever since. He takes a nervous breath before asking, Perhaps you would indulge me and play it for me, here? He steps away from the piano bench, clearing space for me to sit and play. I stand for a moment, still stunned at the surreal situation. I'm used to being the one who sees impossible things. Being the impossible thing is definitely out of my comfort zone. I zombie walk to the bench and take a seat. My fingers hit the keys of their own volition and I play the song. I play it like I've never played it before. Play it on a loud, wonky piano in a Scottish town square. Play it for a strange man I've never met. I close my eyes and let the melody wrap itself around us like a blanket. Just as the melody culminates, I stop. I haven't finished it yet. This is as far as I got before I left, I say to him, keeping my eyes closed. I feel him standing close behind me. I feel our energies mixing. I feel his arms stretch out on either side of me. I open my eyes to see his slender porcelain fingers stretch across the keys as he plays a series of chords that perfectly tie the final bow onto my secret composition. He lets his hands hover over the keyboard for a split second before retreating. It takes me a moment to turn around and face him. That was the perfect ending, I say to him, mesmerized. He smiles again and nods. Behind us, a large clock in the middle of the square sounds a series of gongs. I frown and glance at my watch. Oh my gosh, the dinner! I, I have to go. I fumble clumsily as I gather my things from the ground next to the piano. This was... well, it... it was... I stammer, smiling at him. I would love to, he begins. Sensing he's going to ask me out, I quickly cut him off. It was lovely to meet you, Ross. You're a fantastic musician, I say, grabbing his hand and giving it a firm shake. I apologize for rushing off, but I'm late for dinner, I add, throwing my bag over my shoulder and scurrying away. The truth is, I don't know what to make of this, of him. Rain starts to sprinkle out of the mass of brooding clouds above. I pull a magazine from my bag and hold it over my head as I jog across the square, the click of my block heels echoing behind me. At the edge of the square, I glance back and see Ross Lennox still standing next to the piano. He raises his hand to wave goodbye. I give him a small nod, which I'm not certain he can even see from this distance, and disappear behind the corner of a building. I don't have time to think about what just happened. I need to get ready for dinner. Thank you so much for listening. Tune in next week for a fantastically spooky tale in collaboration with the Haunted UK podcast, which we've dubbed the Haunted Skylark. The story is called The Cellar and was inspired by a real-life paranormal experience shared with me by The Haunted UK, and which you can hear on their podcast. The Skylark Bell's take on things comes with a twist, as we tell the story from the ghost's point of view. The Skylark Bell and the Tales of Lydia Roy are brought to you by Phaeton Starling Publishing and feature original music by Canal.
I would love for you to join me on Patreon for additional content. And be sure to follow my social media accounts where I share regular updates and previews. All necessary links are in the show notes. Before I go, I'd like to give a shout-out to a few other podcasts. First and foremost is the Bupod Network of Paranormal and True Crime Podcasts, with whom I recently did a collaboration. You can find links to all those podcasts in the show notes and also on my social media. Next up are a few other podcasts I very much enjoy. The Grim Cities is a fun and well-researched true crime and paranormal podcast that focuses primarily on stories in the state of Minnesota. But I promise you, these guys do such a great job, you'll enjoy their work no matter where you live. Also, a friendly reminder that if you like stories from Minnesota, or if you enjoy hearing real-life tales of bootleggers and mobsters, Volstedland is a phenomenal, deeply researched podcast delivered with wit and perhaps the occasional drink. Next up is Radio 11 from Scotland. Unlike most of the podcasts I listen to, this one is not paranormal or spooky, but it's hilarious and amazing nonetheless. I love listening to the banter and those amazing accents. This podcast has made me laugh out loud on more than one occasion. Another amazing and different podcast is Something Rather Than Nothing, where host Ken Vellante interviews artists of all disciplines about what art means to them and its role in the world. I was lucky enough to sit down and chat with Ken for his podcast last year, and it was a deep and fascinating conversation. You can find it on my website, melissaoliveri.com, if you'd like to give it a listen. And if you like to philosophize about art and creativity, then Ken's podcast is for you. One last shout-out to a completely different entity... I'd like to share that the Skylark Bell has a posting in Witches Magazine out of the UK. Witches Magazine is an absolutely beautiful and enticing publication, and the Skylark Bell is proud to be featured in the Witches Notice Board, and thrilled to see that we're in great company with a collection of other mystical and magical creative people and businesses. Please take the time to check out the autumn issue that has just come out. It's the perfect thing to curl up with this spooky season. Links to everything mentioned in this episode are available in the show notes. I'd like to add that anything podcast or business related that I've mentioned is purely out of my love and respect for them and a desire to share so others can find and enjoy their creations. Once again, thank you for listening. I'm Melissa Oliveri writer, producer, and host of the Skylark Bell Podcast.
everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.